Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Joining me in Centering today, I am delighted to present to you Megan Remington. Megan is a certified divorce coach, and not that we haven't had other wonderful certified divorce coaches on the program, but everybody brings something different to the table, as you will see with Megan, and she's going to address a very specific issue in high-conflict divorces as we move through this discussion. Just a little background on Megan. She comes from a mental health counseling field. She has a bachelor's degree in family studies from Ohio University and a master's degree in clinical counseling from the Ohio State University. So basically, if we didn't want to talk about coaching, Megan, we could talk about college football, couldn't we? We could, yes. <laughs> but we're going to talk about coaching. I know you, get, you have the big schools out there uh, for great college. So Megan's company is called Thriving Ahead Divorce Coaching. But she has a very interesting story through her own role as a mom, leading into her own divorce, leading into a specialty that she has, high-conflict divorces in her coaching practice. So, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be delightful. Would you please start with the divorce, leading up to the divorce and the divorce? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. I am honored and excited to be here today. So thank you so much. Um, So let's see, my divorce started almost six years ago. Um, So when I I separated from my husband, we had three small, very small children. And like you had said, my background is mental health counseling. So I uh, worked in the mental health counseling field prior to having kids. But once I started having kids, I became a stay-at-home mom and loved that. But once I found myself in the divorce situation, I realized, A, I had to go back to work. And what did that look like for me? And what were my options? And and how that was different for me going through the divorce process as a stay-at-home mom with trying to transition into that role. That was was difficult. but how many, it de- how many years had you not been working when the divorce came up? About seven. Okay, that's a long time. Yeah, so I, I felt out of my area. Um, but mostly, I really knew that as I went through the process, there was a missing link in the whole divorce process. There was the emotional piece that was not being addressed. And every aspect of your life is changed and altered when you get divorced. Um, and so having no outlet other than just the legal jargon of, of how to manage yourself through divorce was really missing. And so I decided afterwards that I would start Thriving Ahead Divorce Coaching to f- help fill that need. And there's a wonderful group of divorce coaches out there that all have that same passion. And it's really a fit for a lot of people that I think the people are seeing that it's a need as you get divorced to have a coach alongside you to help you with those emotions. I never realized how important it was until I really got deep into the mediation business. And even if people had a consulting attorney, even if people had, well, me as a mediator, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Many people go to therapists while they're doing divorce, but therapists take the look back in your past and work on that. But the look to the future, thriving ahead, as your company name is, I agree with you. That piece was missing, and I really understand the value of coaches for that reason. So keep Absolutely. Going. Keep going. Yes, therapy is wonderful and probably needed alongside of the coaching. Um, But like you said, a therapist works backwards. How did things develop in your past that got you to where you are today? Coaching can absolutely take where you are today and decide where you want to be. So what I like to do is help my clients see that future for themselves. When 
when every aspect of your life is being altered, like it is in a divorce, it's sometimes it's hard to even think that this could get better or that the future has, you have options for the future. So I like to help them project, project what that future can look like. And then we backtrack to where we are today and make a real specific roadmap for how you get from point A to point B, which is very different than what you would do in a therapy session. Okay, so I like this, Megan. First of all, taking a future look, which means you're framing the divorce in a more positive way. Life happens for you, not to you. A gentleman named Brian Katie absolutely said that, and I, I try and use that in my life. And so I like you take a future look first, because now that breaks breaks the cycle of victim, right? Yes. What else does absolutely. it do? Yeah. And during the divorce process, I think it helps people determine what kind of client they want to portray in their process with their attorney to be a really confident client, to be an empowered client, to be somebody who on their side of things knows what they want, knows what they're willing to negotiate on, knows what points to back away from. All of those things are things that are the short-term goals we can work on in coaching through the divorce process. And then the after-divorce, the post-divorce, where you're looking at beyond your divorce, what do you want your new life to look like? Um, you know, it's, it's hard at that moment to really see what could be beyond that. So really stretching the client to see that they have different choices. Maybe they're going to need to look into a new career path. Maybe it's going to be what career path is going to help me get to the end goal. I, I find that a lot, that the end goal is big and broad, which we want. But then when we go back and make these step-by-step -step process to get there, sometimes the steps are not exactly what you would think they would be to get you to the end goal. That You might need a secondary job or a, one just as a holding place. For example, I knew I was going into this divorce coaching, but I taught preschool for a few years because I could take my youngest child there. And it was the, the childcare costs did not affect what I was bringing in. And it just, it, the time frame worked. I, they were still, my three kids were still so little. I still needed to be available for them. So finding that job that I could do that fit all of those goals also then helped me to keep moving towards my end goal, which what was this you, business. Megan, what do you do when somebody is seriously emotional to the point where there's more crying, there's more display of emotion? How do you handle that as a coach with a mental health background? Absolutely. Well, coaching, I always tell people, I provide them the space for what they need. And day to day and um, you know, appointment to appointment, it might be something different. So some days may be more emotional, but I also like to keep them moving forward. So while I give them the space to express those emotions, I also then want to give them hope. And so we, we tend to make a shift somewhere mid-session to, all right, here's what we're dealing with today. Where do we want to go from here? Where, what do you want to look different even by the next time that you come? So that by the end of the session, we're not still in that hurt feeling. We're in a feeling where it's more hopeful and more empowering, more driven to, I'm going to go out and do these action items. You know, I mean, so well said. I had a mediation in the office yesterday and the wife was extremely emotional to the point where she was talking about things that weren't relevant to the decisions that had to be made. And what my assessment was as a non-therapist, my assessment was she was looking for validation of her role in the marriage. And many women want validation, especially if they've been stay-at-home moms, mm -hmm. really thinking that their husbands think that their role is minor because mm -hmm. they're a stay-at-home. Meanwhile, it's the biggest role you could ever play. 
Absolutely. And, and when the dads have to stay home, holy heck. And I think that's, <laughs> that's something that should, that should take place. She did realize um, that she was too emotional for the session, which was great. I heard from her today and I said, okay, that's good. At least you have an awareness that mm-hmm. um, we did get some work done. We got some decisions made, you know, so, so it wasn't for naught. But we didn't get enough done because the emotion took over in a way that we just had to let it play out to a large extent. Mm -hmm. So I I wanted to put that out there because there are so many stay-at-home moms, even today, when you think everybody works and raises kids. That's not true. Right. And for them not to think that their role is devalued that's important, but mostly, and this is what I'd like you to comment on, what's the value, what's the purpose in, and what happens if you don't get that validation you're looking for from your spouse while you're sitting in the mediation? That's a very good question, and it's a hard one to make a mental shift. I like to try and help people go from the we to the me. So instead of looking at, we are a group and I'm looking for validation from him to seeing all of these great things that you have, these qualities you have in yourself, how do you validate yourself? How do you find that inner validation where you ultimately feel good about yourself, which is where you should be anyway in a healthy marriage? Even though your spouse might be giving you kudos and and patting you on the back on different things that you've done, the true happiness has to come from within. And so the validation needs to come from yourself. So if they're searching for that from their ex-spouse, that's definitely not where they're going to get it for sure at this point, but really they need to be finding it from within. So a lot of our coaching is helping that shift to how do I find that within myself and validate my own experience. Right. And once in a great while in a divorce mediation, I have heard the other spouse say, I really appreciate what you did. Although I don't want to pay you spousal support. I really (laughs) appreciate what you've done. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, it's a hard job, blah, blah, blah. But but people do have other networks of support. Absolutely. And you probably love to help people. Yes, I love to help people find what I call the divorce tribe. And it doesn't always have to be your core group of friends who you would go to to vent about anything else. You need to really look at who serves what need in your life. It may be that you meet a few new friends who have also been divorced. I know when I started getting divorced, I kind of had the blinders on, like, I'm the only one going through this. But once I started going down this journey, I realized I actually did know a lot of people in this situation. And I met a lot of people. We connected that way and developed amazing friendships over it. And so maybe they are your venting people because they get it. You don't have to explain from scratch. Maybe you have a group of friends who become your distraction. Maybe they're all married and they don't understand, but they can you know, hang out and not talk about the divorce for a while because you need that too. You need somebody who's not going to just sit there and talk to you about your ex-husband for a while. I like that. I like that you have a group of friends that are distractions from what you're... Because you have to be distracted. Right. You can't just focus on it. And that's why every now and then, Megan, uh, in my mediations or when I'm dealing with people filing, I do try and lighten it up a little bit, you know, a laugh here and there, Mm -hmm. just to break the ice of that that focus. Okay, I want to go back to your divorce, though, because there are a couple things about this that I think are seriously important that people need to know. So you grew up in Ohio, right? That's Mm -hmm. why you went to, to Ohio schools. And so you have family in Ohio, I take it. Correct, yes. Okay. But your husband wanted to move to the East Coast, correct? Correct. While we were still married. Kind of Midwest-ish. Yes. 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 So we were living in Ohio and we moved um, to North Carolina for his job when uh, we were still married. 
And what was the secondary reason? This is important. This is getting to a very important. Point. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is when um, I found out that he was having an affair and I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. I had moved myself and my three children. My youngest was nine months old at the time. Wow. So I wasn't getting out of the house a lot. When you have a nine month old and they take two naps a day, you're, you're not socializing very much. And so I really didn't know anybody. And we had only been there a few months. And when I found this out, I told him I wanted to move back. I wanted the kids and I to move back and he was welcome to join us or stay. And he chose to stay. So that made the divorce, a very, or at least the beginning of the divorce, very interesting for me. From the get-go, I was worried, am I even legally allowed to just leave? Can I take the kids across state lines? He said I could, but what if he changed his mind? I was very nervous about the whole thing. Good point. And I luckily reached out to an attorney who helped me through that process. But I think there's so many unknown things that people who have never gone through the divorce process, especially across state lines, don't understand or don't even think about until it's in the moment. And you have to make those split moment decisions of where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And it was tricky. Absolutely. Okay. But back to, because here, because we're getting to a very interesting point. When you were in Ohio, through his job, that relationship had started. It started before you left Ohio, right? She worked with him. Yes. Okay, so now you move to where she lives, unbeknownst to you, and that's when you find out there's this relationship, and somehow you found out that it existed before you moved there, right? It was after we moved there. So we were living in North Carolina, and I found out. So then I wanted to move back to Ohio. But I thought he knew her before you moved to North Carolina, and that was one of the reasons he wanted to move there. Did I get that part wrong? Well, I, I'm, I do not know that, to be specific. Um, but you I would be kind of thought maybe. Yes, okay. I would be hard-pressed to, to think he did not know her, but it's neither here nor there. They well, no, it's in- important to this next point I wanted okay. to make about... Um, Okay, so let's say possibly, because this makes so much sense. Possibly, since she was in his network, he was her supervisor, or somehow she was in his network, this is a nationwide company, and he decides to move to North Carolina, and she happens to live there. You then find out about the affair and want to move back to Ohio, where your family is, where your own support group is. And I hear so many women saying this, uh, especially when they know they have to work, because, well, those I know in Southern California, it's extremely expensive to live here. So, Mm -hmm. if you know, in order to, to work, have childcare, live on your own, it's almost untenable unless you're making really good six figures in Southern California. So I'm used to having this conversation with people about how can we get my husband to be okay or my spouse, if it's same gender, to be okay with me going back to where my family was, where we actually came from. Yeah. Okay. So you move back to Ohio He continues the relationship for a while, but what happened with her and then him? Okay, so that played out throughout our divorce for the next few years. And then, um, you know, I can only guess what happened, but the bits of pieces that I do know is that their relationship did end. And this is after our divorce was final. So, um, you know, it, I don't know what happened on their end and, and I don't think we'll ever know because at, at the next stage of the game, um, my ex took his own life. I am so very sorry. It cannot be easy to say that. It just Absolutely. Can't. In fact, yeah, I'm getting a little, little stammering over it. Well, the father of your children, regardless of how this went down, he's the father of your children. 
So when we were talking, and, and I'm, I want to be as sensitive as I can, because there is a learning lesson in this, you know, bigger for, for a lot of people. And again, so you specialize in high conflict divorce. Mm-hmm. And this next piece is part of a high conflict divorce. Mm-hmm. Megan, you shared with me that he was a narcissist. Yes, that is correct. And that is the personality disorder du jour. Nine and a half years ago when I got into the divorce business, it was bipolar. But over the past, I don't know, four or five years, it's been narcissism. I understand from Bill Eddy, the premier high-conflict authority, that personality disorders actually change as society changes. It's a reflection of what's going on in society. But people, I want to demystify people that are, who are narcissists because people who are narcissists seem to cause um, a lot of stress and distress to their spouses, not only during the marriage, during the divorce. He always gets his way. The judge always agrees with him. How does everybody believe him? I say him because it comes up more with men than women. I don't know why it just seems to do that. But here he lost his family. You moved back to Ohio because mm-hmm. of a choice he made to be with somebody else who then chose not to be with him. Mm -hmm. Can you please address what possibly happened within him as a narcissist for him to take that extreme step? Sure. And this is a piece of high conflict divorce that I think needs to be more addressed and more out there for people to understand. Narcissists are often vilified because of their actions. And I, lived it. So I can absolutely say that narcissistic abuse is abuse. And so it's not, the actions do not get condoned because they have this, this personality trait or disorder if it's, if it gets diagnosed. But what I think people need to understand is that narcissists are not born. They're actually developed based on a person's own childhood trauma. And by trauma, I mean anything that shapes you as a child. So if a person is in an abusive childhood, obviously that's trauma, but it could be somebody that experiences a distant, cold parent that is just not as engaged in loving. And so this child then develops these parts of them, these parts that need protection. And the narcissist develops what are actually on some level, they're coping mechanisms. They're not healthy coping mechanisms and they're not ones that should be nurtured, but they are their coping mechanisms to protect these wounds that they have. And so as they develop into relationships, it becomes their protection. They want to protect themselves against being hurt or they're guarded or really because of their past trauma, they may only care about getting their own needs met. That's really the core part of narcissism is I just want what I want. And we typically kind of glossily hear about the narcissist who's just very vain and very into themselves. And that that is quite a possibility. But I think, at least from myself and my own clients that I work with, what I hear more is somebody who is really just out to protect themselves. And it comes across as a very hurtful way in a relationship. And therefore, you can't look at them as being this powerful, strong person that has control over you because you do have ways of responding absolutely to, to equalize the situation and to make you feel and know and be in, in control of your own life absolutely and so yes there are definitely tools that i work with clients on how to work through a relationship and the dissolve of a relationship with a narcissist. And I think my own background 
coming, seeing that I went full circle around all the way to his death, um, allowed me to really step back and see since I am no longer in that day-to-day relationship with him, I can now look back and see from my own vantage point of what was going on and what was really happening and can help clients work through that. And I like to call that the divorce chess game. And it's kind of looking at, you know, your ex, you know, their buttons, what sets them off, especially, and I'm talking now high conflict. I'm just going to assume that we're talking on the narcissistic level. So you know what's going to push them. Sometimes you have to make a move in the divorce that seems maybe out of, out of place for what you're wanting, but it actually gets you more and closer to what you want. For example, you know, when, when I went to my, before I had my tribe all divided out, you know, if you go to your family and your close friends and you tell them what has actually been going on in your marriage for years, everyone's rallying around you saying, go for full custody, go for all of this, go for, go for it all. You, you deserve it all. And to really have a coach walk you through that that's not how it works. And so how do you get what you want? How do you get more of what you want? And I knew just by the fact of how he was using his visitation while he lived in North Carolina, even before paperwork was signed, that he was very much tied to wanting the image versus the time. So I didn't want to fight him on the name of shared parenting versus sole custody. I had them 99.9% of the time as it was. So I didn't need it written in paper. And I knew that would have been a struggle to actually have him relinquish that custody because as a narcissist, they would not see that as fitting into their ego box. But that was just one example, you know, then, so I used that as a win in my category where I could then, I, in, in some senses negotiated on that and was the one who came to the table saying, I will go for that. So shared, then when shared, yes, equal shared custody, equal shared parenting. So then when something else came to the table, I had some more leverage to say, well, I already compromised on this. Now it's your turn to compromise on this. And so it's really moving those pieces around the chessboard very methodically to know what it is that you're actually after and how are you going to get there working around somebody whose sole sole focus is really themselves. Okay, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. In another sense, I don't know, have you ever heard of the martial arts term Aikido, A-I-K-I-D-O? I have heard of it. I must be honest, I don't know what it means. I just learned it like (laughs) three days ago. No, I literally just learned it. And then when I looked it up, it was put into divorce articles on Mediate.com and Psychology Today and some other places. So we all know what jujitsu is. It's a very confrontational form of martial arts. Aikido is the opposite. It's when an energy force comes towards you. You don't meet it with an equal energy force full on. You move out of the way and you you move with that energy as you're redirecting the energy in a softer, better way. Absolutely. And I think that's what you did. And that's a beautiful way of putting what I just said, is that fighting a narcissist is a losing battle every single time. So you have to come up with different ways to equalize the playing field and to put yourself beside them so that then decisions can be made and you can feel empowered to do so. It's, it's a very difficult dance, but it is doable. And there's some definite tactics that I use. I love um, helping people who can go no contact, go to that method uh, and what that looks like and how scary that is. If you have been, um, you know, in this relationship for a long time or even not a very long time and just have felt that control, what it feels like to step up and say, 
I am not going to be in contact with you anymore. Now, when children are involved, that can't always be the case. So we go no contact as much as possible. And so then our techniques go into how can you still feel like you're empowered and you're making choices and you're not feeling scared in that moment or threatened in that moment? How do you, what does that look like for you? Do you want to only respond in, through email? Do you only want to use a parenting app? And we talk about that and how that can be beneficial. And then we definitely hit all the communication tools and how to use certain tools um, like the BIF model, which is brief. It is. I love the BIF model. Yes, brief, informative, firm and friendly. And to really make sure that your answers do not start this river of email flow that gushes all of your thoughts towards him that he just can then use to ping right back at you. Brief, just really sticking to the facts. And even if he sends or she, I don't want to, you know, it could be the opposite. I'm just talking through my own personal experience. So if your partner sends an email that is scathing and it's just attacking, just, you know, they're just trying to get, get under your skin. How do you respond? It can be as simple as, noted you know something just very simple that like that one i'm not agreeing with you but i'm just i've heard you i'm responding to you i'm not ignoring you i'm not saying okay i agree with you it can just be something as simple as that or if it is something more that needs more of it of a longer explanation keeping it very brief sticking to the facts not having to feel like you need to uh, justify yourself. And that that's where that narcissistic loop comes. Narcissists want supply. Their supply is their drug of choice. So if you can think of it like a drug and somebody who's using wants that drug to feel that high, what narcissists need is called narcissistic supply. And so sometimes they will just send an email out of the blue just to light the bomb, just to start the fire, to see how you respond, to know that they still just can really get at you. And so if your response does not allow that, they're not getting what they need and eventually will stop. Megan, how does that gratify the narcissist? Um, I wish I knew because I am not a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> does that make them feel in control? Is it control does. the name of the game? It does. I was I was being facetious, but um, yes, it. I think it hits their dopamine receptors the same way that any drug would hit, and their chemical makeup has developed into a way that they need that supply. They need that reaction from somebody to feel validated on the inside. That's what they're protecting their wounds from. They want that need to be filled because, uh uh-oh, maybe the Band-Aid's starting to come off a little bit. Maybe my wound is being exposed. So I have to put that out there so that I can get that need met and close that wound back up and feel that sense of superiority that they're looking for. In a strange comparison, if I may, what what struck me was The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. So towards the end of the film, the the Wicked Witch of the West is finally confronted. Everybody's been afraid of her for years and years and years. She can put people to sleep. She can do all these things. But by accident, a bucket of water was thrown on her. Water. And she melted. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot when we're dealing with, uh, you know, narcissism as we're talking today, or anybody says, well, he bullies, she bullies me, he bullies me. Anybody that feels that they have no power to respond and be in relationship with another person who they cede, at least on paper, more power to. And I say, no, there's always a way. To balance a relationship, unless you're mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter and your silence of the lambs, okay, that's an extreme. But we're talking about the regular human being with a job, walking around, uh, functioning in society. Yes. Um, boundaries, that's what you were kind of referring to. Absolutely. 
So really helping clients to maybe establish boundaries for the very first time. And that can be so foreign that it feels wrong. And so what I do often is practice. We role play the boundaries, role play, talking that out to somebody, explaining, I want you to do fill in the blank. And if you do, I will fill in the blank. And you know, the back and forth of the boundaries, we, we role play it out because sometimes myself included, it's, it was very hard for me to set any kind of boundaries with my ex. And sometimes this is the first experience they've ever had doing it. So we really play that out, practice it. And really, we write it out. We have scripts. That way, when you're doing it for the first time, you feel like it's the 10th time you've done it. You've already done it before. Even if it was me in my office, we've already done it. And so you feel like, yeah, I can do this. I can tell this person, these are my needs and you are disrespecting my needs in such a way. And I'm going to now put this boundary where it needs to be. Do you work with tone of voice? Absolutely. Because just like in the, you know, in the email world or social media world, we, we type things out and it's hard to see or express or extrapolate what type of tone of voice the person means. So absolutely, we work with that when I'm helping clients digest an email. Sometimes a client will come in very, very angry saying, can you believe what this email says? Because they're reading it through an already angry lens. And there are times where the email is not anything that is inflammatory. So it's really helping them to piece apart what might be the tone of voice. And then in an actual conversation, we definitely work with tone. Um, We work with how would you say this? And I, I always like to say it's like a business relationship at this point. So how would you say this to your coworker? How would you say this to your boss? If you want, you can say the same two things and have very different reactions depending on your tone of voice, depending on your delivery, do you want to end it with a little dig? Probably not because that's going to make it, the first thing back from them is going to be an attack from the dig. They're going to miss the whole meat and potatoes of your discussion. So how would you address that in a neutral tone? And this is where the BIF comes in. And when I say the friendly side of BIF, I always tell my clients, I'm not asking you to gush and pour yourself over this person who you're angry with. Friendly is just neutral tone and taking the anger and aggression out of it. Right. And that really takes a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. It really does because in order to do that, you really have to come to grips with yourself. You have to get to kind of a stage of forgiveness. Again, forgiveness isn't for the other person to let them off the hook. It's to get rid of that toxicity mm-hmm. in, in, your, in yourself for all the hurt, you know, whatever that ledger is. That, right. So that tone of voice is very, very difficult to work with. Right. I even notice when I'm in mediations and, you know, we're supposed to give the ground rules. I give minimal ground rules. I get more philosophical than anything, but it's interesting. Okay. Are you done? All right. That's it. Have you said everything? You know, that has, that's not a healthy tone of voice regardless of what you're hearing. It's you just stay quiet. Hopefully the mediator will regulate time Mm -hmm. and then you will have your time to speak. So you've you've already hit two really important points with a high conflict personality. Your first point was compromise, the chess yes. game, the yes. chess game. Within that is a compromise because you each have things you want, you each have needs, you each have goals you want to have met, and um, everybody gets to meet their own goals. That's the only way to make this thing look forward. And right, and. and- Uh, You know, this is maybe even the the first time that this person is letting their partner know they actually have needs of their own. Because typically in a narcissistic relationship, your idea is I'm only going to meet this person's needs because that's how I keep peace in the house. Yes. So this may be the very first time 
that they're standing up and saying, I have needs and I would like X, Y, and Z. And that seems unheard of. And it's going to get backlash from the other side who's not used to that. Absolutely. Um, If I may, I have a little bit of an example. And I've shared it with with, with the listeners before. But um, this is tone of voice and compromise. Mm -hmm. A family with two small children on a Sunday is supposed to go to the little girl's piano recital in which she's performing. It's been on the refrigerator, uh, the date, the time, because she's performing, they have to get there earlier than, you know, the other parents who are just, you know, coming. Uh, And and so uh, it's time to leave. So mom and two small children are in the car, in the driveway, thinking dad is coming down the stairs and dad's the narcissist. Well, dad's not showing up. Little girl is getting uh, really uncomfortable. Mommy, we have to go. We have to go. What if I'm late? You know, you don't want that to happen to a child. And wife is getting very annoyed because this has been laid out for a while. Everybody knows what's going on. Wife calls from the car upstairs on the cell are you on your way down? No, I'll be there shortly. I'm just going into the shower. Mm-hmm. How does mom handle it? In the boundary setting compromise world that you're presenting here, because I had to use this for somebody at some point, here was what I came up with. Mom, Just say, listen, go ahead and take a shower. Want you to feel good. You've worked hard all week, something like that. They have more than one car. Everybody has more than one car in their families now. We're going to go ahead and get her to the rehearsal. The address, you know where it is. Um, We'll we'll look forward to seeing you when you get there. Um, See ya. I love it. I love that response because it keeps the flow going with what was expected of the day, especially for the child. It takes the anxiety off of the child for being late, for seeing the parents arguing back and forth about this, from probably hearing mom muddling under her breath that dad's late again. And it really then also, you know, that's the benefit for the child, but for the parent who is setting this boundary, it empowers them. It gives them a sense of control over a situation where another person is dominating the control. The husband knew what time they needed to go. And he made a choice to not be ready and be just getting in the shower. Now, if you played that situation in a different way, which is probably where I am hearing a lot from my clients, how, you know, this happened, now what? So we, got, we do a replay where we would have replayed it how you said it. But this is probably what's more than likely going to happen in that situation where mom feels trapped. Dad's dictating when they go. They're standing outside. She's feeling anxious. She's starting to pace, looking at her watch. We need to go. The child starts getting upset. We need to go. We need to go. Everyone's getting upset. Dad finally strolls out like nothing's wrong. Everyone's mad but dad. And they get in the car. They're going to the recital. Everyone's upset. And the day has essentially been ruined for everyone except the narcissist, which is what they intended. So by setting that boundary, you are not putting the person down. You are saying, we are going to continue with the plan as scheduled. You can meet us where you need, when, we, when you need to be ready, when you need to be there. So it really helps empower that mother to have regain control of her own life so that, especially in a divorce situation like this, where your goal is just to get your daughter to the piano recital. And so you can choose to get her there and set that boundary or wait for dad and have 
you and your daughter be the only ones suffering over this. Absolutely. And Megan, do you think the narcissist consciously exercises control? Or is it an impulse or is it a combination? It's a combination. I think there are definitely deliberate times where they know what they're doing and they know that they're pushing the buttons to get something. And then there's other times where I think it's on autopilot. They just are so used to this behavior and they don't see it as wrong. So why change something that that doesn't feel wrong? You know, it's just like whatever our personality is, if it went against somebody else's, we wouldn't see it as wrong. So we wouldn't see that innate need to change it. That's true. That's true. I mean, all of us, regardless of what the extent of our mental health condition is, all of us will do things that make people feel we're controlling. Absolutely. Dominating or not even thinking about their feelings. You know, how could you have done this? Didn't you understand this is how I would react? You know, I actually didn't. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But, you know, we all do things like that. Okay, so this is really helpful. Also, you have a technique uh, that reframes situations from, and you were talking about this uh, when we initially talked, uh, going from I have to, and maybe this is just the whole acceptance of the divorce, I have to rather, I have to rather than I get to. So you go through a reframing process in your question, yes. do you not? Absolutely. So in this situation, and we can use the piano recital, um, you know, when you are feeling like you are the victim or you are at a lower power level than the other person, we can tend to start our thoughts with, I have to do this. I have to fix the problem that he made, or I have to do everything, you know, just whatever those things are, because maybe you're not getting that reciprocal, true co-parenting relationship that you were hoping to get. Um, You know, maybe the other person isn't giving their 50% and you are doing more. And so that feeling of being put upon by your spouse turns into, I have to do these things. And I like to reframe that with my clients to turning it into, I get to. So I get to take my daughter to the piano recital and make sure she's there on time and see the teacher welcome her and see her. I get to watch her perform. If he misses it, he misses it. You know, those are his choices. And it's really a detachment from you feeling like you have to protect the narcissist to allowing the narcissist to have their experiences, whatever those are, and allowing yourself the power to know that they don't get to dictate anymore what you get to do. Notice I said what you get to do, not what you have to do. Within that reframing and and the other person's uh, behavior changing, the the non-narcissist, can that serve to maybe retrain the narcissist in changing their behavior? Is that even possible? I mean, ultimately, that would be amazing if it could. Um, But that's never the goal. I think helping the clients see that they are responsible for their own actions, their own piece of parenting, whether it ends up being parallel parenting, which is quite common in a high conflict divorce. If it, whatever piece of it that they are a part of, they are responsible. So if the narcissist decides to make changes in their life, that's wonderful. If they don't and they can't do that, that's also not the client's goal to fix. Um, it's, you know, it is interesting to see how somebody's behavior can change. I met a doctor recently and she asked me what I did for a living. I said, I'm in the divorce business. And she said, oh, may I tell you about my divorce? Of course you can. I'm always looking for stories and ways to help people 
moved through their own divorce experience. And she said, totally a high conflict divorce, one child, I think an adolescent, so not a little baby, somebody who kind of knew what was going on. She didn't really feel dad was an engaged parent. Um, so wanted to, wanted her daughter to be with her dead father, but in a limited role, so to speak. And it was just going on forever. They both had uh, attorneys. I guess they both made decent money. Uh, maybe she made more than him. I don't know. because She had a good practice. At a certain point, she just took control and she said, name your price. I mean, it stopped everybody. She said to her attorney, I'm going to take over right now. You just hang in there. And so she just said, name your price. And he said, what do you mean? She said, name your price. It, it doesn't matter. I don't care what the law is. Just name your price. I will do whatever you want me to do, whatever you need to have happen uh, for us to conclude this process. And so he did. He named things. And she said, okay. She didn't argue with anything. And she said he was quite surprised. And, and, and just to test her, he threw in, and I want a trip to Hawaii everything paid. And she said, okay, no problem. Anything else? And he said, no, that's okay. And so she called her attorney. She said, you have one hour to write it up. Write it up, send it over to the other attorney. I'm done. We, we struck a deal. I thought that was really an important lesson to learn because there is a price. Everybody has what they want to get out of the conflict, the situation. Mm -hmm. And like you knew uh, your children's father in that it was very important for him to appear that he had equal time share, equal time with his children, equal whatever you call it in your state. Yeah. And you were okay with that because yeah. you knew you were going to be raising them most of the time and you loved it it wasn't I have to but I get to absolutely you kind of did your own strategy right right and, and that's worked. that's how I came into this business I was I was thinking there needs to be a person in the process who helps somebody see that they're not losing when they negotiate, that a negotiation can be a win in their book. It can be an I get to rather than, well, I have to do this. You, okay, you raised an interesting point. So we have to reframe what winning looks like. Absolutely. And that's different for everybody. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. As we end our time, which has gone like two minutes, I felt like we just started. I know. This has gone so fast. <laughs> you Just such a, a wealth of information and, and such great ideas. I, I, I don't know if we can do this in broad strokes, but there was an exceptional article written about you on your tips from uh, restarting Re, moving through the divorce and restarting after divorce. Yeah. And I think there are four tips, right? Give yes. yourself time. I'm just going to quickly do them and then you jump in and flush them out. Give yourself time to heal. Break it down. Consider hiring a divorce coach and get organized. Could you flesh out these four things for us a little bit? Absolutely. So... The giving yourself time, I think, is the number one most important thing you can do when you're getting divorced. Divorce hurts. It's painful. It is just the, one of the worst processes you can go through. And so when, we, when our bodies are feeling pain, we want it to go away as soon as possible. So even during the divorce, you just want it to get better. And you want, when the ink is dry... The next day, you want it to feel back to normal or the new normal, and it's going to take a lot of time to get there. So giving yourself enough time to figure out how to undo or re remake all those facets that were just undone is basically what that, that entails. 
Um, the next one, break it which, down. What, I'm sorry. Break it down. Break it down. Yes. The next one was this, which is the process that I talked about, which is developing the goals, looking forward to what the big end up goal is, and then coming back and structuring an action plan on how to get there, so that you're really chunking it down. You're not trying to redo your career, buy a new house, re- <laughs> do all of these things all at the same time. What needs to be done first? Talking about safety and the measures to make sure that you have all of your basic needs met. Then what? We will get to all of them, but we can't do them all at the same time. And then hiring the coach is what we talked about already with finding the tribe. A coach can be an essential part of your tribe because sometimes everyone has the best intentions for you but they either haven't been through the process or they're angry about their own process and their advice is just not reasonable to get you to your end goal. So a coach can be that thinking partner that actually moves you forward in the process rather than staying stuck in the anger. And then getting organized is one of the biggest steps that you can take to really feel empowered. There are so many facets to this that the lawyers need all at the same time, all of your bank statements and your all of your documentation. If you can get all of those things organized with the help of a coach, then you are ready and you're a credible client. You're coming into the ballgame as a credible, ready, organized. I know exactly where that is. I can pull that out for you. And it's right there. Megan, nobody's really talked about that part, being a credible client with the attorney. I think that's really, um, I think that's great that you just mentioned that because that's a tough relationship, the attorney-client relationship. If you absolutely need an attorney, you absolutely need an attorney. You know, there's a couple other ways of getting divorced, like doing it yourself, filing. Okay, that makes no sense in my book. That's, that's a minefield and fraught with mistakes. Or you um, go through what we have in California, which is... Um, legal document preparation companies. We are paralegal. I'm one of those. We are paralegals with an extra license to be able to file for you, but we still have to remain neutral. We can't give you advice. We can't do any of that. So when you find yourself in this most expensive relationship, and that of the attorney and the client, A, people don't realize that it's really the client who's in charge. Mm-hmm. The lawyer knows the law, but this is your life, and you have to be in charge of your life. So, you know, hopefully, you get a great lawyer, and they will give you great advice, and they will be judicious, no pun intended, about the way they proceed so that they don't become the worst person in the process and make your divorce a powder keg you know, constantly, because mm-hmm. they can do that. They, can, they yeah. can fuel that that litigated anger. But being organized is the name of the game. Absolutely. Because they don't know you. They only know how you present you to them. And if you present yourself as a, as a little bit of a mess and, you know, not having things ready on time and bogging down the process it's not going to bode well for you. Absolutely. And for yourself. I mean, when, when somebody isn't organized and ready for a meeting with their attorney or their mediator and they come in and they're disorganized, your anxiety is already up. So you're setting yourself up for failure because you're already coming into a highly anxious environment. You've now raised your anxiety by not being prepared and having a sense of organization, and now you're trying to justify all of those things across the table, and it it often just implodes. They have to be organized when they come to you, don't they? Yes. I bet you have a little schedule that you put them on and step-by-step break it down. Absolutely. That's what the (laughs) step-by-step, that's a nice way of saying these are your homework assignments, (laughs) and you, you work yourself through it, and we get them from point A to point B. 
That's really great. Megan, I want everybody in the world to be able to contact you. How can they do this? Absolutely. You can find me on my website, which is thrivingahead.com, or you can email me at Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N, at thrivingahead.com. And I will put all of this in the show notes as well, so that people can have that. Thank you, Megan. This was one of the best hours I've spent. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. I'm so passionate about this and wanting to get this information out there and into the hands of the people that need it. It's obvious. It's really obvious. And thank all of you, of course, for joining every week. Uh, Much appreciated because as I try and present people to give you an amicable divorce experience, I want you, I want to set up you to be able to create your own amicable divorce on your own as well. So I hope this has empowered you, educated you. Please share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't already. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.